Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T R Y L I F E M D.com. Do you believe in ESP? Do you believe that some people have the ability to predict the future? Is it possible for someone to know intimate details about a stranger's life without ever meeting them? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer, an actor, and a skeptic who believes in science, but also gets that, like, maybe we don't understand everything in the universe, you know? This week, psychics who help with police investigations. Are they for real? Or are they just looky-loos who figure out how to insert themselves into the drama? You probably won't be surprised to hear that I'm skeptical when it comes to psychics. And I have good reason to be. When I was in my mid-20s, I got a survival job as a customer service rep at a psychic hotline you've probably seen commercials for. Let's call it wackadoodle psychic so I don't get sued. Our regulars spent thousands of dollars on these calls to people claiming to be psychics. Thousands. One guy always called for stock advice, and one woman spent $60,000 in one summer with us. $60,000. As part of the job, we were required to get our own psychic readings once a week so we could recommend one of our 100 or so world-class psychics to our customers. I realize this is an astonishing level of earnestness from a company just a few digits away from a phone sex line, but... In the end, these sessions were excruciating. The psychics all worked from home and were 100% doing laundry and watching Maury Povich on mute while doing readings. The only way to make the readings bearable was to invent completely new personas and lead these people down rabbit holes of complete nonsense. Miss Goldenfeather, I would say, who 99% of the time was a white lady who was just appropriating someone else's culture. My voice would quiver with fake tears. I haven't seen my mama in 15 years. She kicked me out the house when I was 17 for getting myself knocked up. Now she wants me to come home for Thanksgiving. What should I do? Or I'd ask for a pet reading on my imaginary iguana, Eddie Lizard. Oddly enough, none of the psychics ever knew I was lying. Look, I do believe that some people possess psychic ability. I don't purport to know how, but somehow I think some people are able to tap into information in a way that us normies can't. 
But while some so-called psychics use their talents to make themselves famous, despite very little evidence that they actually are psychic, some, you'll find, quietly go about trying to help find missing kids or murder suspects, sometimes getting it wrong, but sometimes, somehow, getting it eerily right. Today, I'll tell you about a few of each of those cases. Sylvia Brown. What can I say? A lot, actually. Sylvia Brown, world-renowned psychic who claimed to be able to predict the future, have answers to mysteries no one else could solve, and often convinced police to spend precious time and funds following her predictions. You might remember Sylvia from her regular appearances on the Montel Williams show in the 90s and 2000s. She had overly processed blonde hair, which... No judgment, because same. But hers was long and looked like it could have been bought in the Halloween section at Kmart. She was one of those women who clearly was becoming addicted to plastic surgery, and if she hadn't died at 77, she would have ended up carving her face into oblivion. She always had the kind of manicured nails you would not want to come across in a dark alley. And she talked like she ate a bag of gravel every morning for breakfast and washed it down with a carton of cigarettes. Yes, it's so nice of you to join me again on spiritnow.com. One of Sylvia's specialties, according to herself, was helping to solve cases of missing children and to help people with missing or dead family members find out how their loved ones died or where they were. In 1999, nine-year-old Opal Joe Jennings was playing with two friends aged four and two in the yard at her grandparents' home in Saginaw, Texas. A year earlier, her single mother, Leola, sent Opal to live with her grandparents so Leola could work and save money. I just want to pause here for a brief moment to point out how fucked up it is that we live in a country where a parent has to send their child thousands of miles away just so they can work. Anyway. On a March day in 1999, while Opal played in her grandparents' yard, a man pulled up in a dark car and, according to the two children who were with Opal, got out of the car, grabbed Opal, punched her in the chest, put her in the car, and drove away. I'm going to go ahead and guess that conducting an investigation based on the accounts of a two- and a four-year-old is challenging. The four-year-old said the man was either light or dark-complected and drove a purple-d-black car. Not the most helpful. When Opal's father was ruled out as a suspect, because remember, most kidnappings happen by a family member, police began to focus on known sex offenders in the area and zeroed in on Richard Lee Franks, who fit the vague description the four-year-old kid had given. Franks was eventually sentenced to life in prison for the abduction, despite there being no physical evidence. He gave a statement which is pretty damning and also fucking awful in which he claims that Opal was basically throwing herself at him and begging him to have sex with her. His story is that a nine-year-old was throwing herself at him, 
a grown man and saying things I don't even say unless I'm a few tequilas in. You know what I mean? Suffice to say, Franks had an IQ of 64 and claimed to have been coerced into a statement and confused about what he was being asked by police. Other inmates came forward claiming he confessed all kinds of things about the case to them. Lord knows, prison snitches aren't the most reliable. And don't get me wrong, the guy was a convicted sex offender and I'm not arguing for his innocence. I'm just saying we all know cases where false confessions have been coerced out of people with low IQs. Cough, cough, Brendan Dassey. A month after Opal went missing, before there were any suspects, her grandmother went on the Montel Williams show to get information about her missing granddaughter from Sylvia. Which, no shame. People do all kinds of weird shit when they're grieving. Montel called Opal's grandmother to the stage, and almost before this woman can sit down next to Sylvia, Sylvia told her that Opal had been taken by a white man and then sold to someone in Japan, quote, on the Asian market. She's not dead, but what bothers me. Now, I've never heard of this before, but for some reason, she was taken and put into some kind of slavery thing and taken into Japan. Like what? The Asian market? Like down in Chinatown where I can buy yummy tea and fish and stuff? I'm so confused. She went on to say that Opal was being used as a slave in a place she called, quote, Kokoru or something that sounds like that, end quote. Now look, I've said it before and I'll say it again. I'm no geographer, but I'm pretty sure there's no such place. In fact, I googled it. There isn't. The word kokoru in Japanese means mind, body, and spirit. So, A, not a place, and B, um, racist much? She's just gonna say a word she thinks might sort of sound Japanese and then be like, I don't know, something like that. Anyway, Long story short, Opal's body was found in 2003 in a wooded area 10 miles from her grandparents' home, not in Mind, Body, and Spirit, Japan. Opal wasn't a slave to some nefarious James Bond villain. But, okay, maybe Sylvia was having an off day. One of the things about Sylvia was that she made her predictions, at least the ones she made on the Montel Williams show, without pausing, very definitively, and she never backed down or corrected herself. If someone contradicted her, she would be like, Look, I don't know what to tell you. This is what I'm seeing, okay? Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. 
Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Another case that Sylvia weighed in on was of Sean Hornbeck, who had gone missing in October 2002 while riding his bike near his home in a small town in Missouri, about 60 miles from St. Louis. A massive search produced nothing. Desperate, Sean's parents turned to the Montel Williams show and Sylvia to get answers, which just highlights how desperate they were because Sylvia Brown didn't have a great track record. Let me rephrase. Sylvia had a terrible track record. Almost everything she predicted was wrong. Like when she said Bill Clinton didn't have an affair with Monica Lewinsky. (laughs) Oops, am I right, girl? I don't know if Sean's parents flew themselves to the Montel Williams show or if the Montel Williams show paid to bring them there. All I can assume is that Sean's parents were just hoping the publicity might help locate their son. Sylvia told them that Sean had been taken by a, quote, dark-complected man with dreadlocks who was driving an older Chevrolet with tail fins. The guy was um, dark-skinned. Although he wasn't black, he was more uh, Hispanic-looking. Had uh, real long, dark hair. And strange enough, Hispanic, but he had dreadlocks. She told them Sean was dead, buried by some jagged rocks in the woods. Sean's parents later claimed that police altered their investigation for weeks following Sylvia's information. Also, Sylvia offered Sean's parents a follow-up private reading to help them get more information on Sean's whereabouts for the very generous price of, ready for it? $700. Sean's parents passed on the offer. Could you imagine claiming to have information about the whereabouts or fate of someone's missing child and charging them money for that information? Like, consult your crystal ball or whatever it is you do and tell someone where the kid is. I mean. In 2007, four years after Sean went missing, 13-year-old Ben Ownby was abducted on his way home in St. Louis. A witness said a man in a white truck grabbed him, put him in the truck, and drove away. I sincerely hope this means that the witness immediately went to the police and that it wasn't like days later when the police were looking for Ben and the guy was like, oh, yeah, come to think of it, I did see a kid get pulled into a truck that sped away. (laughs) Sheesh, seems like an important detail, huh, guys? Four days after Ben went missing, officers responding to an unrelated call saw a white truck at an apartment complex that fit the description the witness gave. A white guy with short hair named Michael Devlin was taking out his trash, and the officers took the opportunity to talk to him. Devlin was friendly and chatty until the officers brought up Ben Ownby. Then he got cagey. The officers reported all this to the FBI, who moved in on Devlin either that day or the next, and found not only Ben Ownby in his apartment, but also Sean Hornbeck. Sean was very much alive and definitely not buried by some jagged boulders. Back in 2002, when 11-year-old Sean had been biking to a friend's house, Devlin hit him with his truck, then scooped him up and threw him in his van. 
The reason he gave police for why he did this? He was lonely. He was lonely, you guys. For the four years that Sean was held captive, he had access to the internet, phone, and was allowed to ride his bike outside. One account I read said that Devlin would sometimes let Sean drive his truck. Devlin worked at a pizza place, which means Sean had hours by himself. What did this guy do to Sean that he didn't try to escape? Why didn't Sean just take his bike or the truck and drive the fuck home? Why didn't he call the police? And listen, before you accuse me of victim blaming, I'm not. These are genuine questions. Like, what happens to a person to make them so compliant? Threats? Just plain old Stockholm Syndrome? You always think that if you were ever taken, you would spend the rest of your life trying to get home, you know? But four years, you guys. Four years in which Sylvia could have gotten more messages from, quote, God about where Sean was. Yes, she claimed to have a direct line to God, and that's how she got her information. Especially considering Sean later reported that he thought about his parents every day, prayed every night that they would find him, and even reached out to them on the internet. You'd think Sylvia would have gotten some of that intel. In fact, Michelle McNamara, who you probably know if you read or watched I'll Be Gone in the Dark, predicted that the same guy who took Ben probably took Sean. You know how she did that? By using actual information available to the public. She also found a few other cases of missing boys she believed may have also been taken by Devlin. Unfortunately, those cases had already gone too cold and remain unsolved. It's just a shame that the police listened to Sylvia Brown when there was a person out there who actually was putting the pieces together. Also, you better be goddamn good and sure you know the perpetrator was a person of color before you go throwing those accusations around. I don't give a shit if you actually are psychic. You better ask your source to triple check that shit. A man with a dark complexion and dreadlocks? Jesus Christ, lady. So, Sylvia Brown was a fraud, right? We're all on the same page? Good. And here's the thing. It's all well and good for me to sit here making fun of her, but the people she preyed on were shattered and desperate. They were parents and loved ones of missing children and spouses. Sylvia Brown was like an ambulance chaser who, instead of offering half-assed shitty counsel, offered completely made-up shit that really did nothing for anyone. One last story about how Sylvia got something spectacularly wrong, because this one is bananas. In 2002, David Rapasky and Amanda McClelland, David's wife and mother of his three children, went on the Montel Williams show to get some answers about the whereabouts of Amanda's mother, Linda, who had mysteriously vanished two years earlier. Now, why Montel Williams kept having this psychotic liar on his show to spout nonsense is beyond me. He had to have known by then that almost none of her predictions were ever right. I guess the I married a stripper and I'm not the father of her baby shows weren't pulling in the ratings like they used to. So Amanda and David ask Sylvia where Linda is, and Sylvia says Linda is alive in Orlando, Florida, and was taken by a man with the initials MJ. I wish to baby Jesus I could find a video of this encounter because there's David Rapasky, 
Linda's son-in-law and father of her three grandchildren sitting right there with his wife asking about his poor dear old mother-in-law, all the while knowing full well he had fucking murdered her. This human trash can was having an affair with his mother-in-law, which, you know, gross, but also whatever, you do you. And she threatened to tell her daughter, who was pregnant at the time. So he did the only logical thing, which was to stand on her neck till she died, dump her in the basement until he found a, quote, good place to bury her, at which point he had a friend, a guy named Donald, help him bring her out to the spot he'd picked and was like, okay, you dig the hole, I'm out of here. Which is like, what? You're just going to bounce and leave this dude here with the corpse of the woman you murdered? I don't know if that's trust or stupidity. So his moron friend Donald digs the hole and then calls him and is like, Duh, boss, what do you want me to do with the body? And David goes, you didn't bury it? And Donald was like, no, I was waiting for you. And David's like, yeah, bro, I'd love to, but can you just do it? He makes Donald dig the grave and bury the body of the woman he murdered because, I don't know, he was too busy? Look, I know some friendships are super tight, but this just seems beyond the pale. It wasn't until a year or so later when they were both arrested for a string of burglaries that Donald spilled the information in an effort to save his own hide. The last thing I'll say about Sylvia Brown is that she predicted she would die at 88. She died at 77. Man, this lady was fucking bad at her job. Now, like I said, I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility that a person can have psychic abilities. I do think that Sylvia Brown did not have psychic abilities. But I wanted to present you with some cases where psychics got it right. It turns out those cases are very hard to find. Even if you pop over to readersdigest.com, which I don't recommend, and read articles with headlines like 20 times psychics got it right, once you barely scratch the surface on those cases, you find out it's a little more complicated. It's super hard to get good statistics on police use of psychics in investigations. Police don't really like to talk about how much they rely on psychics. And as some cases get older, the information on them changes drastically. If you read five articles about a case from 50 years ago, each written in a subsequent decade, you'll find the reporting goes from police credit so-and-so psychic for pointing them in the right direction to initially police admitted to using a psychic's help but later retracted the statement to eventually police adamantly deny using a psychic in the case and claim that any information a psychic may have given was patently wrong. So it's a little hard to keep track of. But according to an article in Forbes, the CIA conducted a study and found that 8 out of 11 police officers polled said they used psychics to help them solve crimes. 8 out of 11. Oddly enough, I couldn't gain access to the CIA report, even though it was supposed to be declassified. The link was broken. I think someone high up read the report and was like, fuck no, burn that shit. But 8 out of 11 is a lot. I don't even think 8 out of 11 people believe in psychics generally. 8 out of 11? Even if those numbers are inflated and it's more like 5 out of 11, don't you think there must be something we don't know? 
And look, there could be many reasons a cop might turn to a psychic. Desperation, laziness, appeasing distraught loved ones. And even if afterward they try to backpedal and make it look like the psychic wasn't helpful, it does make you wonder why so many police officers who aren't generally known for their hippy-dippiness reported using psychics to help them solve cases. Dorothy Allison is a psychic who worked with police on numerous cases. She claimed to get messages about missing people and volunteered her help to police out of a sense of justice, meaning she didn't charge for her services. One case that Dorothy Allison helped on was of missing New Jersey man John DeMars. On December 20th, 1974, John DeMars, a 30-year-old, happily married banker, got on the train in New York City headed for his home in Nutley, New Jersey, but never made it. Tips came in, including from a cab driver who said a man fitting John's description had him take him to the airport in Newark, New Jersey. But his description of the man's clothing didn't match John's, and the cabbie said the man had an overnight bag, which his wife, Elaine, said John didn't own. She also said that John never carried a lot of cash, and neither his bank account or credit cards were touched since his disappearance. Now listen, people, if I were going to leave my partner with no warning, I would most likely have some contingencies in place that they didn't know about, you know? For example, I would probably have an overnight bag that I kept, I don't know, at the office? And maybe a change of clothes? And a stash of cash? The man worked in New York City. I'm pretty sure there are one or two places he could have bought a change of clothing and an overnight bag. On the other hand, if I were the left partner, I would cling to whatever thin evidence I could that my partner didn't abandon me. Though, honestly, that would have been better than what did happen to John DeMars. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. When John had been missing for about three weeks, his wife, Elaine, and his mother called psychic Dorothy Allison for help. Now, I don't know anything about what led them to this decision, but I will say that if we learned anything about the cops in New York and New Jersey from the Watcher episode and the Vanishing Men episode... I'm going to go out on a limb and say the police weren't, like, scouring the tri-state area looking for John. More likely, they were like, meh, he probably killed himself. Case solved. So whatever the reason, they reached out to Dorothy Allison, and this is what she had to say. John was dead. She said she saw, quote, a river, a row of tires, an ice pond, an amusement, and the number 166. 
She also said, quote, the area smelled like fish. Dorothy said the body would be found somewhere they already had searched on February 21st. John's body was discovered on the banks of a river on February 22nd, which I will grant you is not February 21st, but come on, that's pretty damn close. The guy went missing on December 20th, and this lady knew within a day when he would be found two months later? And that there was a river? I checked the route between Penn Station, where John would have gotten on the train, and Nutley, New Jersey, where he lived. It passes over some water, sure, but it's not like it runs along a river for miles. It's not like she thought, well, most likely he fell into the river because that's where the train runs. He could have just as easily been in a field or a ditch. John's body was found by a father and son who were looking for stray bows that they might have lost while practicing archery at a nearby archery range, which could absolutely be considered an amusement, if you ask me. There was a row of tires on a nearby fence. Now ask yourself this, when was the last time you saw a random row of tires not at a tire store? Like, maybe it was just a really good guess, but again, how could she know he was by a river? The number 166 that Dorothy said she saw, there was a barge a few miles from where John's body was found with the number 166 written on it. Now, some could argue that Dorothy was from New Jersey and maybe she was just familiar with the area. Okay, but like, I'm from Brooklyn and I can't tell you what the entire borough looks like. And again, John could have been anywhere, anywhere. But this lady's like, he's by a river near an amusement near a row of tires and the number 166. And he was. Even if it was just a good guess, that shit is weird. I am perfectly happy filing eerily accurate guesses in the strange and unexplained category. One thing that Dorothy wasn't able to clear up was how on earth John went from an Amtrak train to drowned on a riverbank. There were no signs of foul play, and no witnesses seemed to have seen anything. What police think must have happened to John is that he fell asleep on the train and woke up when the train came to a stop in between stations on a bridge above the Passaic River, at which point John just got up, opened the train door, stepped off the train, and plummeted to his death. What? Hold on, what? First of all, what is it with engineers of potential death machines not putting safety measures in before people randomly open train doors just whenever or walk into open elevator shafts? Like, didn't it occur to people who designed the commuter trains that passengers shouldn't be able to just open the train doors willy-nilly? And then no one noticed a guy opening the train doors on a bridge? No witnesses were like, oh yeah, I saw him open the doors and just thought like, whatever. And then, could you imagine being half asleep, thinking you're getting off at some suburban New Jersey train stop and suddenly finding yourself falling hundreds of feet to your death? Is there a worse way to die? Don't answer that. Whatever. That is some shit right there. Anyway... It's a shame John didn't send Dorothy messages from beyond the grave about how in the world this happened to him. I'll leave you with one last story. 
Toward the end of my tenure at Wackadoodle Psychics, I posted an open letter on my own website airing my frustrations with some of the worst asshole customers I was tired of dealing with. So fed up was I, I named them by first and last name, said where they were from, and said things like, I hope when your children find out you've spent their college funds on bullshit psychic readings, they leave you to spend the rest of your sad, lonely life in your house you'll no doubt foreclose on. I also named the company by their real name. A co-worker of mine called it a coup de blog. About a week later, the owner of the company Googled his own company. You know, like you do once in a while to make sure no rogue employee is publicly shitting all over you and opening you up to serious lawsuits. And my blog was one of the first things that popped up. I was fired. Strangely enough, the psychic I had had a reading with earlier that week didn't think to warn me. The more spiritual you are, and you know what spirituality means, like I've said so many times in my book, means love God, do good, and then shut up and go home. Next time on Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan, a man walks into a crowded bar with a friend and is never seen again. And then in New York City, another man walks into a subway station and is also never seen again. Where did they go? How is it possible that they both vanished in densely crowded places covered in surveillance cameras? Did they disappear on purpose or was it something more sinister? We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. This episode was written by me, edited by Claire Smith-Marish, and researched by Jessica Ann. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. Our episodes are mixed and edited by Jennifer Swatek. If you like our show, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUpod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation. If you're enjoying our show, check out all of the Obsessed Network shows, including Crimes of the Centuries, a deep dive into historical crimes hosted by award-winning journalist Amber Hunt. This week's episodes cover the botched case against Jeffrey McDonald. After McDonald's two daughters and pregnant wife were found dead, the question was, who killed them? Was it a quartet of acid-dropping hippies or McDonald himself? Find Crimes of the Centuries wherever you get your podcasts.